Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of the No Ceilings Podcast. I am Tyler Metcalf, your host, your host of Home and Away this week. But more importantly, I am joined by Richard Stamen, aka Mavs now slash Magic Draft. Richard, how's it going? Hey, it's going well. I'm glad to glad to be on. I think this is my first time doing a podcast with you, and it's been several years. It's my fault, but <laughs> I'm excited to be back. No, we, we we've had some some scheduling difficulties uh, in the past but i'm glad we we're finally able to kind of reconnect and do one of these and just talk basketball for a while um so you know uh when when i first met you you were uh mavs draft what what sparked the change to to include the magic part well i had to defend myself so i grew up uh, I, i'm from orlando originally and i live in dallas now i was just indecisive as a kid when i was <laughs> asked like my parents asked so who are you gonna be a fan of and I was like, well, both. And they followed suit. So I'm influential in that regard <laughs> in my family. But so it's really that instead of having to just say, oh, by the way, I'm a Magic fan. It's now like saying, hey, like FYI, it's it just comes as like an assumption with it now. So that, you know, when I defend the Magic, it's not just me being random. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a homer, <laughs> more of a homer with them than the Mavs. Yeah, f- fair enough. Um, but before we dive into everything, we got full slate today. Uh, but Tell the people where they can find you. Obviously, on Twitter, it's Mavs slash Magic Draft. Awesome follow, great info. But tell everyone where they can hear your voice, find your written stuff, all of it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, so at Mavs Draft is on Twitter, uh, at NBA Draft Film Room on Instagram, and then MavsDraft.com. I post scouting reports almost once a day and uh, do Locked On NBA Big Board for podcasts on YouTube and anywhere you get podcasts. Richard does awesome work. He has been for years. Make sure to go support him. Um, before we dive into a couple of players that we're going to break down here, I asked you for some of your favorites this year, and you gave me Kobe Bufkin, Trace Jackson Davis, and Derek Whitehead, and I was thrilled when you gave me those names. Um, but before we get into those, I kind of want to talk about two teams that are in the, your name on Twitter, uh, the Mavs and the Magic, and just kind of go through a quick review of their season and what ideal situations for them in this upcoming draft are. Um, and I, I think it's just a really interesting juxtaposition because they're two teams in very different stages of their life cycle or what we, you know, perceive to be their life cycle um, in terms of team building coming into the season. So let's start with the Mavs. What happened? <laughs> you know, I, I was skeptical about the Kyrie Irving addition at the trade deadline, but one, I thought the assets they gave up wasn't bad and also just kind of clarifying that he's not why they were bad it was yeah. trending down beforehand they had they went from 24th defense before he got there to 28th that that jump from 24 to 28 just really did him in because too often their offense just went dry it was it was just bad execution of everything Kyrie honestly is very far from the blame he's probably the most uh innocent player I would say in terms of the the if you're going down the line of blame he's at the very bottom. Like he, he's not a reason why this team failed. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously the, the kind of only two young players on that team, or I guess that we, I, I kind of exclude Luca from the conversation, seeing that he's already in the MVP conversation regularly. Um, Josh green and uh, Jane Hardy. What was, what was your kind of big picture takeaway from them this year? Yeah, so I've I've had to fall on the sword a lot on Jaden Hardy. I was a little bit low on him after having him number one on my board <laughs> before the season. And then I was like, oh, man, he struggled in the G League. I didn't think his athleticism popped. So I was worried, but he's been a great spot-up shooter. He's been a just solid weapon offensively, and he's only going to keep getting better. I think the Ignite program, it's really made me just reevaluate how I look at that. Um, so that's my long-term takeaway. But with him, I mean, you have a really solid backup scorer as long as Luca and Kyrie are there. 
And then Josh Green took a jump for sure. He was somebody who a year and a half ago, Desmond Bain called him out and they're like, yeah, they took this guy who doesn't, he's racking up DNPs over me. And Desmond actually really wanted to be in Dallas. Like there, there's quotes of it. Mm-hmm. And like, obviously he went to TCU. So it's right in their backyard. But ever since then, he's had to play. And Josh Green this year really took a jump as a shooter and as a ball handler and as a defender and putting it all together is really where that jump came. He wasn't anything like, um, you know, spectacular in terms of volume. He still averaged just nine points a game, but that was that was just about double his points per game. And he raised his efficiency to 30 or I'm sorry, 54 percent shooting. So a uh, big jump from him all around. So the, the Mavs now find, surprisingly find themselves in the lottery, um, I, I think 10th overall and maybe 11th. Sorry if I had that mixed up. Um, what would kind of be an ideal outcome for them in your eyes? Yeah, so they have the 10th pick. And if it, if any team, if Chicago, Oklahoma City, Toronto, or New Orleans jump, uh, any of them jump, Dallas loses their pick to the Knicks. And the worst case scenario for me, you said I was Magic and Mavs draft. You hinted at that. If Chicago jumps, they keep the pick. That would normally go to Orlando if it stays. So that would be an absolute nightmare scenario. I'm, <laughs> I'm be completely prepared for it. But the ideal scenario for me, there's a couple ways I see it playing out that I think would be ideal scenarios. Jairus Walker somehow falls. I don't think that's that likely. The other option is Taylor Hendricks is there. That's That's been a dream. Uh, I do the community mocks every single week, and I think this is the first week that I'm doing right now that Taylor Hendricks isn't there, and it's only because I took him with the team in the top <laughs> 10 ahead of Dallas. Like, So I think that's a really solid outcome. I think whatever they do, they've got to take somebody who – has a great combination of both high floor and high ceiling. Like Taylor Hendricks and Jairus Walker just really fit that, I think. Awesome. All right, let's pivot to the Magic. Um, obviously, took Paolo Bancaro number one overall last year. Uh, they seem to really have hit on Franz Wagner. They're finding, you know, really good stuff with Wendell Carter and, you know, just a litany of guards who kind of keep producing some something on a nightly basis. Uh, what was your kind of reaction to their season as a whole? Yeah, they had one of the biggest jumps of uh, just win totals. I mean, they went up 12 wins. I think I was third in the league or second in the league. And that was unexpected. I think most of us were saying, all right, Powell's going to be a good rookie, rookie of the year contender, but they're going to like hover 30 wins tops. And honestly, they could have won 36, 37 if they didn't not only start five and 20, which is just remarkable because they actually, if I'm not mistaken, they had a top 12 record, I think after that after the first 25 games so the the final 57 they were fantastic and it really speaks volumes to one just how good they were overall and also that was a couple games where they threw away at the end of the year but it really shows just how good of both the ceiling and floor raiser palabon caro is plus franz wagner they've got a great upside i mean they probably have to consolidate is there one issue it's a good problem to have where they have too many players that don't have a defined role and they probably got to turn that in for a star. So th- they could potentially have two lottery picks in this draft. Where do you kind of see them going? Because you know, when, when you look at a mock draft, it's all over the place with them. Um, you know, I personally, I think some sort of combination of home run swing with one pick and, you know, pure legit, like bona fide shooter with another would be a, solid way to go but when when you kind of look at their them and their team building history what they need holes in their roster what are you hoping for yeah i mean first and foremost they have to take at least one white south shooter my hope i'm in the same boat is you know they take somebody who is going to be a home run swing at one pick whether it's you know 11 with the bulls pick or six with their own pick I'd probably prefer it at 11 because it's just such a boomer bust spot. But if you can get at six, I mean, I think this kind of addresses my, my dream draft for them personally is getting Taylor Hendricks if you, at 11. I don't think it's very likely. Could also take him at six and probably even land in that scenario. There's a very real outcome where you get Cam Whitmore at 11. And I think that's how you balance it. You both are really good shooters. You could even make the argument, you know, you could get, um, I mean, you can get Grady Dick over there. Like you can get, Bryce Sensibaugh's in, in the 11 range, Keontae George, you know, those guys have been all in the mix, but the Magic really like their defenders and their players with wingspan. So I think long shooters is going to be the priority for them. And there are definitely a handful in that kind of mid to late lottery range that they could target. Um, I, I 
I love what they're kind of building over there. It's really interesting. Um, fascinated to see what direction it goes in. Um, but I brought you on not just to talk about Mavs and Magic, but to really dive into three of your favorite players. Um, and first up, we have Kobe Bufkin. But let's first take a quick ad break. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. So, Rich, when when I message you, um, I, I you know I'm, I'm a diehard Michigan fan. I try to keep the the fandom out of the analysis, um, but Kobe Bufkin makes it really hard. And I was really excited when you brought him up. So, what made him one of your kind of favorite players in this draft, or one of the guys that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I mean, like, let me ask you a question: What does he do wrong? I think it's the hardest question of any prospect. Um. It's tough because when you look at like what he was as a freshman to this year, he just improved substantially in every area of his game. Um, you know, if you want to nitpick the offensive stuff, like he's a good passer. I'm not sure how great of a playmaker he necessarily is, but I don't really worry about it. Um, I think some of the defensive footwork can get a little sloppy at times, but his hands are incredible. His instincts, the size. I don't think there's really a massive glaring weakness to his game. Yeah, for me, it was stuff like needs to add strength, a little inconsistent off the bounds, uh, and just needs to hone in on his point guard skills. Since this is his first year playing point guard, and that really blew mm-hmm. me away because it was few and far in between, but the flashes were really impressive of passing, right? Where you could find some examples of him just making an advanced read probably once every three to five games, which sounds like nothing, but given the fact that, I mean, Michigan, I, you're a Michigan fan, like I think the offense at times was very sloppy. Yeah. And, I think it ran better when Kobe was was point guard. And to me, he's a pure combo guard at the next level. But as he develops his point guard skills, like we're looking at a really like a starting caliber player. So how likely or feasible, let's say, do you think that is for him to do? Because I the, the league is littered with combo guards right now. You can't really be a primary ball handler handler if you can't score in some form or fashion. The the idea of, you know, the traditional point guard is slowly dying away. Um, but how difficult do you think it is for a player to kind of pivot from being that more off-ball kind of scoring combo guard into more of a full-fledged playmaker who does orchestrate everything on offense? Yeah, I think it's harder for guys who struggle in more areas. That's why I'm confident in Kobe Bufkin because – even if the point guard, like the point guard skills are going to be a little bit of a learning curve and just a, a growing pains, right? For whoever drafts him, you're, you're not going to get it perfect for 82 games. And the good thing with Kobe is you can have him play off ball. He's very capable in playing in two guard lineups. That's what you absolutely have to have in this NBA. He, he's done it before. He can do it definitely in the NBA. But also he's going to impact the game in other areas. If the playmaking is not there, the scoring and defense are probably there, at least one of those. And to me, that makes him a positive player. He's always going to be creating points one way or the other. And, you know, as those point guard skills improve, even if he's only an average point guard when he tries to run it, I still think there's a high enough floor for him to be a high-level rotation player. So just sticking with the playmaking for a little bit, what are there certain aspects of it that really get you excited, like how he runs the pick and roll or DHO or makes skip passes? Or is, is there any specific aspect or, of it? Or is it just kind of the occasional flashes where it's like, oh, that's something that he can really build on going into the future? A little bit of both. I do like his pick and roll. I don't think it's anything like insanely impressive, but I think it's enough where you're like, dang, like you have to remind yourself this guy is new at point guard. And I like that. And then on top of that, I think his vision is very good. He made a lot of no look, look away passes and just was able to find his roller. And just one thing I love with guys who run the pick and roll is they don't hone in on like, they don't focus on just doing one thing, finding just the roller, finding just the score. He really reads the situation. He can do just about anything, find the cutter when the, when the screener is setting up his screen, find the shooter who's open across the court. Like he sees everything. And I really like that. It reminds me almost um like it's not quite one-to-one but the way he runs a pick and roll I, I see the upside being someone like 
like Ryan Rollins from last year, who I thought mm-hmm. ran one of the best pick and rolls of anybody in that draft. Yeah, well, definitely a lot of Ryan Rollins fans here. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't heard that one before. I'm going to have to – now you gave me a homework assignment. And awesome. it's, it's more <laughs> of what he could grow into as a pick and roll right. guy, not like a one-to-one comparison, but if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, it definitely does. Um, no, it, I, I definitely get the idea of – you know, shades of their, their pieces of that, that influence it. Um, okay. That's fascinating. So as a scorer, do you like him more on ball, off ball, a blend? Um, what, what would his kind of overall scoring package kind of get you excited about what he can continue to grow into? And, you know, adding on to that, is there anything that kind of made you pause and be like, mm, how real is that? Yeah. The off the dribble scoring was a little bit, like low. I mean, just the percentages aren't strong. I think he's low thirties and off the dribble shooting, but that's somewhere I think all the indicators suggest he's going to be fine. And I mean, he's still shot 85% from the line. And, you know, if you're shooting 85% from the line, most of your jump shot is going to translate. So I really like the jump shooting. I think he's got a good runner. Um, I think his quick first step helps him a lot as an on-ball creator. And then on top of that too, I just think he knows how to cut. He knows when to cut. He's got a good motor. He has a nose for the ball. He's going to find a way to get the ball and get to the right spots as a scorer. Whether, and you know, it's not necessarily just the scoring, right? Where if he can get his man up in the air, which he does a really good job of after his first step, he, he draws in defenders. Like he has a little bit of gravity in college and finds his, his roller, you know, or his cutter underneath or just the dump off man. And I know that's not scoring like you asked, but I think that is an element, right? Where you have to be aware of the passing too. I think that can really open up his game. Just you look at NBA spacing. I think he's going to get to the rim so much more easily. Yeah. And I, I think that is something that he really grew on a ton in this year compared to his freshman year. And that, you know, that 15 pounds of muscle that he added over the summer, it's, you know, the cliche for every returning player, but with him, it's visible. Like you can actually see how much bigger he is in the span of, you know, six, seven months from the end of the previous season. And so much of that, I think, really helped him in the scoring, especially in the mid-range and at the rim. Like you said, I mean, in the half court, um, he shot 64% on layups. And I think he has really good touch around there and did a really good job of kind of honing that ability to extend with his left hand and finish at angles that that helped defenders and his defender couldn't really get to and really challenge the shot. I thought that kind of same type of craft and guile was really evident in his mid-range stuff too with how he's not this explosive athlete, but he's really good with the hesitations and change of pace and that kind of herky-jerky movement that's like, oh, God, like how is this guy shaking you? But then when you actually have to guard someone like that, it's so difficult because you're never really quite sure what speed or direction they're moving in. Yeah, I mean, it's just that unpredictability to his game, again, both as a scorer and a passer. Just when he has the ball in his hands, you just never know what he's going to do. And as a defender, I think that's the hardest thing is just not knowing what someone's going to do. When you know they're trying to get to their jump shot, they're trying to get to the rim, they're trying to get to this hand, whatever, that makes it a much easier scouting report. But, you know, he's a lefty. Like, I think any lefty is automatically going to get ripped for having, you know, not having a strong enough right hand, but there's really no like glaring weakness, right? There's definitely prospects where we've watched, I mean, even Julius Randle back in the day, mm-hmm. not obviously at all similar to Kobe Bufkin, but both lefties where it's like in, in Marvin Bagley, where there was zero right hand, it's just not the same thing. I, I feel confident in him developing a right hand. I don't think you can force him one way. It's just all that stuff, the, the traditional things to slow guys down. It just doesn't work on him. Let's talk about the shot. How much are you buying it? It improved a ton, you know, percentage wise um, from freshman to sophomore season. He wasn't pegged as a shooter really coming into college or this year. And it seemed to be a really viable weapon for him, um, at least comparing to where he was at coming into the year. So short term, long term, are you are you buying the the shooting improvement? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm buying it pretty easily, even though the synergy numbers aren't like crazy strong, 37% on catch and shoot threes, 31% on off the dribble threes. It's enough with the free throw percentage. I buy that more than those two numbers, uh, 85% from the line, 35 and a half from three. Like those are strong enough indicators where unless he just goes <laughs> like he's, he just forgets how to, to shoot. I'm not going to name players on uh, on the magic, but, you know, unless <laughs> something like that happens, I just I can't see him being anything 
worse than an average shooter. And honestly, if you're an average shooter and a three-level score, yeah. that's plenty while playing yeah. defense too. Yeah, this, yeah, and your playmaking and all that kind of other stuff. There, there, there are levels to it. Not not all shooting percentages are right. created the same. Um, let's talk about the defense. I, I think he has some of the best defensive hands in this class. I get a little irritated with some of the fundamentals, like with the footwork, uh, like I mentioned earlier. Overall, big picture, where do you see him as a defender? Yeah, I like his. Uh, I like his defense overall. He's got quick feet. Actually, really good speed on defense, I would say. He times contests very well. That was something that really popped to me is when he would see a guy even halfway start to bend his knees, he was up. And it wasn't just like a hezzy bending your knees. You know, you got to do that to get guys. But he didn't fall for that stuff. I mean, it was he knew when they were going into their shots, just the way you can tell the fundamentals that he was taught when like way back when on defense really stick with him. And on top of that, he has a high motor. So I'm hesitant to doubt guys that have high motor, uh, good foot speed, Obviously, like you said, there are things to work through, and then his hands are really good as well. I think there's no red flags to me that say, like, oh, this guy's not going to be good on defense. Like, no, maybe he'll have some off nights, but worse than average, I highly doubt it. So when when you say that you don't really have any doubts, um, you know, the, the next question with combo guards is, how versatile are they? Are they can, can can they be someone who guards up a position or two even um, occasionally, or are they kind of more to the one two position defender and they're just kind of exclusively in the backcourt? Where do you see how he how his defensive versatility kind of overall fits into a team construction concept? I think once he adds like NBA level strength, like give him two years to get through a program. I think he's going to be able to guard most wings. Obviously not like the combo forward guys, but like anybody that like DeMar DeRozan type of wing, right? Where it's like they're a solid two, three. And I think you're going to be able to see him do that because it, he may not be like a lockdown defender, but he's going to hold your his own and he's not going to be somebody who a coach is like, oh God, this is not a matchup we want to see. Like that's, I, I feel like, when you evaluate defense, something that goes into it, not everyone's going to add strength, right? I love looking at it the lens of like, if this guy adds say 20 pounds of muscle eventually and like really fills out his frame, whatever the number you want to put uh, it's arbitrary, but say you want to put a number there. I think adding strength just changes so much of the game for guys. I mean, finishing at the rim defense, but like on the defensive end, it really makes resisting just first uh, not really first steps, but the first moves, just having the defensive counters, it works. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he's currently listed at 6'4". I think his measurements at the Combine, um, assuming he gets invited, um, are going to be fascinating. Uh, if he could even come in at 6'5", that would be de delightful. Um, I'm fascinated to see what his wingspan is. I feel like he's got good length, but I, I think I really agree with you that, that as he continues to get stronger, we saw how much of a difference it can make from his freshman to sophomore year in an NBA context two more years i think that's going to do wonders for him especially with his lower body be able to kind of get under some of those bigger wings like you mentioned um and provide that defensive versatility i i i think it it's a really fascinating outlook for him so obviously not not doing a one-to-one -one comp um you know not there, there, nothing's super translatable like that, but is there anyone that he kind of reminds you of, or you could see playing somewhat of a similar role as to someone who's succeeded in the NBA? Yeah. There's a few guys that his game reminds me of. There's a little bit of shades of Emmanuel quickly. Um, I would also say a throwback here. I like Devin Harris as a comp. Ooh. Uh, it's not, it's not fully one-to-one, -one, but, and then I'd say, this is a weird one, but a little bit of Shake Milton in a way. Like if you combined all three of them, like the best and worst of some of them, like you take you take you take some and you you leave some for the others. But if you really blend that grouping, I think that's what you get with Kobe Bufkin. Awesome. All right, uh, let's move on to Trace Jackson Davis. Uh, but first, let's take our final ad break. So Trace Jackson Davis feels like he's somehow becoming rather polarizing um, in the, the draft space. Um, he's someone that for the last couple of years, I was super low on uh, the fact that there wasn't a jumper. He was undersized. I'm like, this isn't real. He's going to be a good college player. And that's it. 
Um, I've completely done a 180 on it. I have him as like easy first round guy. Um, what gets you so excited about watching his game? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's a few things. One, the guy is a walking five by five threat, which is just ridiculous. Uh, you know, I know he's a senior. I think he's a little bit older, 23 years old by the time the draft comes by. But he averaged 21 points a game, 11 rebounds, four assists, pretty much a steal game, and three blocks a game. That's four stocks a game, <laughs> which is just nuts. And I get it. He's 6'9". Is he going to be able to play that same thing? Sure, I get it. But, like, didn't draft Twitter fall in love with 6'8", Brandon Clark, for all of those same things? And And also, I know you said the shot, too. Let's not let's not dismiss this. His free throw percentage for the most part has improved all of the last three years. 65%. It started at 68 and a half as a freshman. That's why I say for the most part. But as a sophomore, 65 and a half, which isn't even that bad for somebody who doesn't shoot. 67% last year, 69 and a half from the free throw line. Just for reference, um, let's look at Mo Bamba because I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Mo Bamba shot 68% from the free throw line. Who is who is just a guy who was supposed to be a stretch big. So if you're so worried about the jump shot, I get it. He hasn't done anything in game. I do think it is something where, you know, he could surprise a bunch of people and start shooting at like the combine or something or in pre-draft workouts. Uh, my co-host at Locked On NBA Big Board, Rafael Barlow, has said that, and it's something where there are real indicators of that shot. He probably just can't do it. So to me, that's all super exciting. And then you factor in there's no defensive three in the NBA. He's going to be able to actually play his real play style. Yeah, and it – it's frustrating because it feels like he has incredible touch, like finishing around the rim. Like you mentioned, the free throw stuff is just improved. I So why do you think that we just never see him take even just like a 12-foot face-up jumper? Because I the, the, the versatility in his interior and kind of mid-range scoring with how quick his feet are, how incredible his balance is, how explosive he is, just adding that little... 10 to 15 foot face up jumper, I, I think would even do such wonders for his scoring game. Well, I think it's two things. One, he's doubled every time he gets the ball within 15. Doesn't feet. help. Yeah. And so how are you going to operate and do, do new things when everybody is just swarming you? And then it's just kind of also the college landscape, right? Guy, I mean, bigs are always camping out in the paint. It's hard to do anything within 15 feet. I think uh, just in general as a post oriented big. So I think it's a lot of those two things. And then, the other one, it's always a question mark when guys aren't shooting jump shots. Is it a work ethic thing? Is it a willingness thing? Like, we don't know. Absolutely. Um, so over the last couple of years, is there anything specific that stood out to you about his offensive growth, uh, whether it's the playmaking, the scoring versatility, the band, any of it where it's like more so, oh, that's a, that's a significant leap in his progression rather than just you know a, a guy getting older and more mature i mean i think the the passing has really taken a jump it's something where you know i noticed it where i was like dang that was a nice pass and he would make nice passes out of the post but now he's straight up doing it where he's running transition offense making good passes i mean it's not a coincidence he doubled his assist from 1.9 to 4 a game right i think that's been a big thing for him um and I just I feel like the playmaking, you know, how much does it translate? I get it. A lot of the stuff also is handoffs. So I will mm -hmm. I will admit that it's not stuff that's like super creative. But when you look at just how gifted he has gotten at handling double teams while still making the right read, seeing the floor, not getting tunnel vision, things like that, that's really promising to me just for his overall, like it paints a picture for the overall feel for the game as a passer, right? So I really like that stuff when he, when he's in the NBA. You do a pick and roll. Can you make a pass out of the short roll? Absolutely. If you post them up, can you make a pass? Absolutely. Just any situation, I think the passing will be there. To me, it just really paints that picture. Yeah, and I, earlier in the season, it was something that really stood out to me because, as well, because he, like you said, he was making those, um, you know, skip passes out of the post. Uh, but then it got to a level where he was like manipulating weak side defenders where he would eye up the guy in the weak side corner and then his teammate would cut and he would move the defenders and drop it off to the cutter. And it's like, this is really, really advanced stuff that he's doing on a nightly basis. If so, if we're lauding that as one of his most valuable offensive skills from this year, how translatable to the NBA and to whatever his potential role, how, how translatable do you think that could be for him? And you're saying for the passing, right? 
Yeah, yeah, just, just yeah. Some passing for now. I, I mean, I think it's it's one of those things again where it's like there's not any one situation where you're like, perfect, we can live with running this offense through him. It's more, again, if the offense gets stranded, how many times do you see? I mean, you're a Wolves fan. I'm a Mavs fan. Like we've seen Rudy Gobert, Dwight Powell, these guys who are at the rim specialists where they get kind of stuck. And from there, it's like, what do you do? Do you hand it off? Do you just sit there? Do you not know what to do? And Trace Jackson Davis knows what to do. It's going to happen to him a lot just because that's the nature of the game. Your game is going to get taken away every once in a while. And I think his ability to make something out of nothing is a big thing. And, you know, again, how much it will it actually happen? Who knows? But it's one of those things where it's not a specific thing. It just kind of paints the picture of, Will he be able to be composed in a pressure situation, which I think matters like in the playoffs. The playoffs are just constant pressure and you can play him that way, even if he can't shoot. Yeah. And I just, what you mentioned with his just awareness and ability to just read and react. That's so valuable in the playoffs. And they're obviously different players, different athletes, but we're seeing a lot of that from just Kevon Looney and his ability to make that quick decision off of an offensive rebounder out of the short roll and just keep the ball moving and the ball doesn't stick. It doesn't really matter that he can't shoot because he's constantly on the boards. He's constantly moving the ball and screening and keeping the offensive flow going. And I don't think that that's such an outrageous ask for Trace Jackson Davis. And then you add in his scoring ability and his footwork, his ability to finish through contact on lobs. Where are you at with his overall scoring ability? I know we talked about the shooting, but how how encouraged or discouraged are you by what he does around the rim? Yeah, I mean, I'm very encouraged. I think a lot of his offense coming from the post doesn't help him, uh, his case, I think, because people – anytime in 20 – I mean, past 2010, really, 2015, you're like, oh, you're a post player, dismissed. And it's – you know, there's an art to it. I think you got to be able to still post up mismatches and things like that and quick offense especially. But – you know, post-up isn't going to be his offense. I was shocked to see he's barely taken 200 pick-and-roll finish shots over his entire four-year career at Indiana. And I thought about it, and I was like, well, if a big, like, I mean, he goes against Zach Eady. He's been going against him now a couple of years. 7-4, 7-3, Zach Eady just sitting in the paint. How are you supposed to roll against that? And for me, I think the pick-and-roll ability is outstanding. I think he's got the athleticism. He does a lot of those give-and-go handoffs, curl, when there's no big in the paint. And I think that's going to be something that really benefits him. He's not going to be posting up as much. The offensive rebounds, he can get putbacks on dunks and layups. Like I think all the touches there for him to be just a play finisher at the rim in every single regard. And then again, like in transition, if he's the first man back and you've got a point guard on you, he can still take him to the post and still operate in that regard. So I fully expect his scoring to – it's not going to be 20 points per game. But right. I do think he is somebody who – it paints a picture of this guy can actually still put the ball in the basket whenever he's asked to in any regard. Yeah. And as a finisher, not yeah, a no, yeah, no, for <laughs> sure. Um, no, but to, just to finish up with this offense, the, the big argument against, I know we talked about it already, but the big argument against him is going to be, well, he doesn't shoot. He can't shoot. Even, but let's say none of the, let's say there's zero growth to his shooting for the rest of his career. How detrimental do you think that actually, that's actually going to be to him. I mean, there's bigs that cannot shoot that still make a living in this league. One of them, actually, one of them I would say is Dwight Powell. And if you made, like, this might be a segue, you put Dwight Powell with defense and more on-ball ability, which at some point that's not the same player, but it's still, there are shades of it, right? Dwight Powell has been a constant NBA player despite not shooting threes for the last three years. There's also, I mean, again, Brandon Clark isn't much of a – I'm, I'm looking this up now how many sh- three-point shots he's taking, but I know it's not much. Yeah. Uh, he just doesn't shoot threes. I mean, yeah, for the last two years, he's a combined .43 attempts a game, and Memphis missed him badly. And he does a lot of the same things Trace Jackson Davis does. So for me, yeah, you can't shoot. It kind of sucks. It's a bummer. But, like, is it the end-all, be-all? Absolutely not. You'd be shocked at how many players – take less than 53s a game and obviously trace is going to be closer to zero than 50 especially early in his career from three uh point attempts but i mean the fact if you're not even taking one a game as a big you're not a stretch big and there's a lot of those in the league and they still have a place i think it's a big misconception i a thousand percent agree just for just for the record um i i think he's grown his offense in so many different ways where it 
it'd be nice. I'd love for him to be able to shoot, but I don't think it's really going to matter in the long run. Um, so l- let's pivot to his defense. Yes, he's undersized. Um, his arms seem to go on forever whenever he jumps, and he's springy as fuck. So w- how do you view him overall as a defender? Yeah, so I think ability-wise, he's very much there. He can guard multiple positions because of that athleticism and length. He's a very good athlete, like I said. Um, I think he's got the shot block timing down. I think that's something that's really helpful for him, and he has a good second jump too. So, I mean, if he bites on a fake, he's still not out of the play. Um, now, what worries me a little bit is I do worry some about the motor. I've had that I've had that question on him since I saw him as a sophomore, and part of that includes that he hunts blocks. Um, and again, the size may hurt, but you know, I think rebounding has to be factored into defense because that's how you close possessions. Right. And he's an elite rebounder rebounding translates. I think that can make up for it. Again, the questions that come back to motor, does he want to, you know, do it a hundred percent every single play? It's up to him, but there are questions because even though he was such a great individual rebounder, and it's not all on him. I think this is an unfairly skewed question that I've heard before, but why was Indiana so bad at rebounding as a team? Like dominant rebounding teams or dominant rebounders should anchor at least an average rebounding team. But I think they were in the low to like mid two hundreds, which is very alarming. Again, it's not his fault. They couldn't recruit great bigs, but it is something that I have heard people question about him before. And I'm bringing up a, be- a questionable motor is a massive red flag to a lot of people just right off the bat where it's like, oh, no motor, see ya. So when, when you say that, is there something specific that you've kind of seen from him, bad habits, or is it just kind of a general feel for it? Yeah, it's more, I'm, I find myself going, why aren't you going after this ball right now? Like there's a play where I, I, I wish I could remember him, but you know, there's plays where I see him guys come right into his spot where all he has to do is take one giant step forward, which isn't hard for him. The dude's massive and he chooses just to make a weak contest, things like that. Um, just not going after, like when you're as physically dominant as him, I mean, he is very strong. I know he's not the tallest player, but he is very strong. He's very athletic and he's very long. He should be using that every single play and he'd be even more dominant than he already was. How much of the, not, not to necessarily chalk up excuses for him, um, because when you're the guy, you should be the guy all the time. And I know that's e- easier said than done. But how much of that do you think is just a symptom of how much he had to do for that team on offense? Yeah, I think a good amount. Uh, I say this as a Mavs fan. I know how tone deaf it sounds uh, <laughs> with the star player being one of the weakest star motors in the league. Timberwolves, I I get it. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, this stuff dates back to his freshman and sophomore year. These are notes I've had for a long time before he was the man. Uh, And that's what worries me is it didn't get better as, you know, like when you're the star, I do think you need to to know, hey, like I lead by example, and that's kind of where it worries me. But, again, just going back to freshman, sophomore year when he had other guys there where he wasn't the best player – I think uh, the notes were there. I was like, why aren't you going for this ball? Like you should have a better nose for the ball. Fair enough. And just last thing on this defense, uh, one of my bigger, bigger concerns with him is that it kind of seems like he gets lost in space a lot with his drop coverage positioning. He just kind of gets caught in no man's land where he's either giving up the lot behind him or like you just mentioned, the just an uncontested pull up, um, you know, his, the rare occasions where he had to kind of keep track of a guy who was moving on the perimeter he didn't really do a great job of keeping track of them and just kind of got lost in the play and just camped out. Um, But when he's locked in on ball in the post or protecting the rim, that's where it's like, Oh, okay, this is awesome. Do you have any of the concerns kind of similar to that where like actually defending more complex schemes, he could falter some. I haven't paid enough attention to that regard, but I do know. I I feel like he's, he, he can play any defense, I think, physically out of the pick and roll. But that's something where I feel like he has to be taught still. That's something sure. where it's a learning curve where you might want to put him in the G League, even though it's not the most organized defense. I, I get it. It's still going to help him because the pace is so quick and you have to make those quick decisions in pick and rolls. I think it might help him. And it's not like he needs to be there for his full first season. It's just like, hey, if he's not in the rotation early on, just put him there. Let him get the reps for both offense and defense and playing that tempo. And I think just make quick decisions as a defender will do a lot for him. All right. uh, Last thing with Trace. It's draft night. You're a GM. What kind of range would you be happy to take him in? 
I'd take him at the end of the first round. Look, if you're a playoff team and you need a, another big man that can fill a variety of roles, right? Whether it's you're looking to, to add depth to your big man rotation, whether it's you're trying to find a pick and roll guy, uh, somebody who can be trusted with the ball, a great rebounder, whatever it is, I think you can do that. Like for me, I'd love to see him in Dallas if the Mavs bought a pick like at the end of this, uh, at the end of the first round, not bought, but like uh, traded for somehow. Yeah. If they traded back from 10, found a way to trade with like Indiana, for example, who has a pick there. I would love, uh, as weird as it would be to take away from the home state, the in-state connection there. You know, I'd love to see him here because the Mavs were the worst rebounding team. They struggled on defense and they just have arguably, I would say they have the worst big man rotation in the league. And you get a free agent, like a low end free agent level acquisition in him. If you can do that for a first round contract, you do it. All right. Um, Let's move on to Derek Whitehead, who I was all in on to start the year. I had him uh, like top five locked for a long time. Um, I just needed to see how their injury was going to, I was stubborn, you know, accepting that. And, you know, he has dropped, but I haven't completely written him off. Like a lot of people have big picture Derek thoughts. I don't think this year, I think this year could not have gone worse for him. Um, but w- where are you at with, with his just overall draft stock? Yeah, he was a complete misfit. I mean, that I I think he just had no role on that team. They were like, figure it out, see ya. And then they just waved to him and like, like turned their back is what it felt like at times. Because, you know, yes, he was a great shooter. I think that was eventually what he found his niche role as was just be a shooter. And it really worked out for him. I mean, he shot 43% from the from three and 79% from the line, like the the free throw percentage and attempts, you know, it's a little bit skewed, but there's been enough history where I feel like you can say, look, this guy's shooting touch is legit. The injury really just threw him off, not only for his actual play, he added weight, and he never really got a chance to find that preseason role going into the season, getting ahead of momentum and finding out who he is, what he plays best as. And that really hurt him. I, I think I, I just <laughs> – how are you supposed to overcome that when, and he had two foot injuries too. It wasn't just the preseason injury one. I mean, I thought he blew out his Achilles. Yeah. I'm very terrifying, very happy. He didn't. And the best part is though, is that he still has the quick first step. The medicals are going to be the big red flag with him though. Like if, if it checks out, he's good. I think he goes top 15. If it doesn't, he could be one of the sliders on draft night. Yeah. And I, after he came back from his injuries a couple weeks later, I forget what reporter asked him, but he, he, flat out said he's like yeah the game is really fast for me right now and that's something that a lot of these guys figure out in those early season tournaments and in training camp and not only did it look fast he never looked like he was able to really get into full game shape for the entire year and I I thought that just like the quickness and the type of player that we saw for multiple years starting for Montverde was completely different than the guy we saw at Duke and it's I keep finding myself putting a lot more weight on the Montford film where his junior year, we saw him be that kind of gadgety toolsy defender who was a role player running out in transition, being more of a play finisher. And then his senior year, he took over as kind of the guy and like the scorer and the primary initiator. And the fact that we've seen him play both of those very different roles at a very high level, surrounded by really good talent um, at a top tier program, I, I keep finding myself going back to that when I have to convince myself of who he could be and just kind of throwing out most of this year. Yeah. It's funny you say about the the tempo threw him off. One of my notes I have on him as, as a negative was he passes first thinks second, like, and then I wrote the game has to slow down for him. You can tell the speed of the game is going to hurt him. And I think that's where you got to spend some time in the G league. You, and, and, you know, it's hard for these top, 20 guys to I think swallow their pride and go down there but there are some guys who embrace it and if, honestly if his mentality is it'll make me better I'm gonna do it I'll you know I'll still draw a crowd at least like you know that's the hope is if he does that it would really benefit him not just even the long term I mean I really think it would help in the short term too looking at Jaden Hardy for example is a great you know he spent the G League Ignite he didn't the year in the Ignite he didn't want to go back there like no yeah. no guy who goes there to go play in the NBA, wants to go back. Like the goal is you don't go back, you hit. But, you know, Jaden Hardy was on a team behind Luka Doncic where it was hard to get minutes. And there are plenty of guards on the team and he embraced it. He went down there in December, early January, found his groove, never came back. 
And that should be the goal with Dariq Whitehead is stay around in the NBA, see what you can do in the early months. If there's no spot, hey, get some reps in the G League, figure out how to play quickly, and then just come back and come out guns blazing. Like following Jaden Hardy's rookie season should really be everything Dariq Whitehead should be looking at. Yeah, and it, coming into the year, it, I thought that the the big question with Whitehead was the shooting and how real was you know the improvement from his junior year to senior year. And I think with just like if you look solely at the high school film, sorry to keep harping on the high school film, but I thought there were like significant mechanical improvements that he made while in high school. And then he comes out at Duke, has these multiple injuries, doesn't have a role, is kind of just told, you know, put out on the court. And to, it seemed, you know, as this is all conjecture, settle down, Duke fans. Uh, it just seemed like he was told, go figure it out. And I think that really carries over. And when you look at his play type style, I mean, 41% of his possessions were spot up possessions and he ranked in the 85th percentile in points per possession in those possessions and shot almost 40 percent out of those the fact that he was that effective as that off-ball shooter i thought was really really encouraging yeah i mean he shot the specifics even going deeper the catch and shoot threes i mean 45 percent from three and yeah. that was a heavy volume off the dribble threes not as much volume it was 36.4 percent but you know, if you're in college and you're shooting as a freshman, especially one who's kind of raw, like Whitehead, you're shooting over 35. Like, that's what you want to see on off the dribble. 40%, I would say, on catch and shoot is promising. 45 is really impressive. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. It just, I, I think if you went to some of the best NBA shooters, their catch and shoot numbers are similar to that. Obviously, it's a different competition and everything, but I just, I really like how he operates off ball. So, looking forward... We obviously didn't get to see him do a ton in terms of offensive role and versatility this this year. But what do you think is a realistic outcome for him as an offensive weapon going forward, both short-term and kind of long-term? Yeah, I think his offensive weapon calling card early on is simply going to be shooting. And it's not just, hey, be an off-ball player, sit in the corner and be ready. Like, it's not like that. Mm -hmm. It is, hey, we can trust you. If you got an ISO against a bad defender, we can probably trust you to to get your jump shot. I mean, he had some really impressive off-the-dribble flashes. Like, I think that was something that got lost. He has some nice handles. He just didn't get to use it that much. I think that's going to be his early calling card. His long-term vision, I think, really turns into can he, like, improve those playmaking skills? He doesn't need to be some great guard as a playmaker like he doesn't need to be this legendary playmaker right but he does need to be if he followed desmond bain's path i think he'd be phenomenal you look at desmond bain can run the point now he can run offense just run a quick pick and roll see the floor at all times use his shooting gravity to draw in defenders and find the open man quickly that's what Dariq whitehead should be doing and again that comes with improving that pass first think second mentality flipping it and, you know, you don't want to overthink it, but you got to improve that to really unlock your passing. And I think that's for him. If he was able to be a scoring guard, scoring wing that can create for others as well. And it doesn't need to be, again, like these crazy pick and roll, splitting defenses, things like that. Just keep the ball flowing. And I think the assists will pop up. All right. Let, let's pivot to his defense. Um, this year wasn't good. And I, I think a big reason why was – the multiple injuries and just that inability to really ever get into full game shape. Um, again, sorry to keep going back to it for like the 18th time now, but the high school stuff, I thought his junior year when he wasn't the offensive weapon, I thought he was an awesome defender his junior year. I thought that kind of reverted a little bit his senior year, except when, you know, cliche of all defenders, except for when he locked in and when he locked in is like, Oh, okay. This dude is physical. He's strong. He's got good instincts, great footwork. Um, I'm optimistic about the defense, um, at least the individual kind of on-ball stuff. Where where are you at with it? Yeah, I mean, he has good enough tools, right, where I think he's got long arms. He's 6'6", so that's going to give him an automatic advantage being able to truly guard those one through threes. Um, he's got a good motor. There's really been no indication for me that he takes plays off consistently. Like, I mean, kind of conversely to Trace Jackson Davis that we were talking about before, there's not much of why aren't you doing this when I'm watching him on film. That being said, you know, also one other positive actually before I go in the negatives is the recovery ability for especially someone who got injured. I think, you know, faked out first step beats him. He can still stay in the play. And that's really impressive to me. Now, that being said, 
he is still raw on defense. I think he's still very much learning defense. Mm -hmm. And again, this almost goes back to he's just a misfit on that Duke team. How much of it actually was his defensive flaws and how much of it was college spacing, the college rules, just the overall system. And that's going to be something NBA teams have to work out. So, so if you were looking at just just his defense and there was one specific thing that you would like to see him really work on and improve in, you know, over the summer, um, say you were just hypothetically, you were his trainer and that's what you were working on improving. What would that one thing kind of be? That's tough. Um, I really think it's just decision-making on defense. I think it's something where it's like, do I need to go left or right around the screen through it, whatever it is. Navigating screens is always hard for young players. I think just becoming a better pick and roll defender is going to do him a lot of wonders too. And then if things do go correctly, if, you know, they go how we hope they go for him, how good of a defender do you, or could you see him being? I think on a scale of like one to 10, I can see him being like six and a half, seven, which is above average. I mean, it's not necessarily locked down, but he can hold his own when needed. And, you know, you need to stop at any possession. He's not somebody again, who you're going to go, please, not this guy. Do not switch him onto there. So he's going to be able to play end of games on defense. I think he he's going to be fine on that end. All right. Well, it, it was a disappointing year for him. Um, and you know, all of us who bought in early, but draft night, same question to, as I gave you with trace, where would you feel comfortable about taking him? Yeah, I'd take him again, assuming the, the foot is generally clear. Yeah. Um, I would say I, w- I would take him as early as that Mavs pick. I mean, Ooh. the Mavs go all in on shooting. He's a high upside player. He has the blend of both, right? where you've got the immediate offensive impact. He could grow into a defender. He can grow into a creator. He has to improve his slashing, obviously. But I think he could go as high as 11 or 10 and fall all the way down to like 20. I think he's a, a safe team pick. Well, and, and is that just purely because you, you think the, the off-ball shooting is such a viable skill that at minimum yeah. he's that? And we've seen, I mean, kind of like you said, the two most famous words we've talked about here in high school – yeah. He he showed so many flashes of being that three level score. I think teams are going to invest and say we can we can unlock that to happen again. It wasn't wasn't a skill issue that held him back from being that. It was foot injury and what was that Duke team? I mean him, Andrew. Uh, I'm sorry, Jeremy Roach and uh, Tyrese Proctor all on the floor at the same time is a disaster for if you're trying to showcase Tariq Whitehead. Well. Richard, this was awesome. Uh, This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for taking the time. Please plug everything you got one more time for the people. Yeah, every week I do a community mock draft. Tyler's been in a couple, I think. You'll be in more, obviously, as it keeps coming. I'll give you teams better than the Timberwolves. (laughs) Uh, who have one measly second-round pick. but Nothing uh, like pick number 56. Yeah, I'm sure you've been super excited (laughs) for that. But, you know, I I do the community mock drafts once a week i'm doing scouting reports uh, all that on my site mapstraft.com and then locked on nba big board as well awesome well I, everyone please make sure to go support richard uh he does awesome work really smart guy great guy on top of it so once again i'm tyler metcalf you can follow me on twitter at tmetcalf11 you can find all of our written work at noceilingsnba.com it's 100 free and follow us across all socials at no ceilings tv if you enjoyed this episode please make sure to subscribe leave a review and if i start writing until next time see you